12, Genesis chapter 12 together. And uh, thank you for being patient this morning as we work through the screens. It looks like Acacia just brought it back online. Thank you, Acacia, for that. And I hope that you had an opportunity to worship this morning and singing. If I could encourage dads, you can lead. You lead with your voice and your family will follow and it will do well. It will go well for your family. Genesis chapter 12, last Sunday we were in our first sermon in uh, the series on marriage. We talked about the Garden of Eden. And it was, it's interesting that in the Garden of Eden we had uh, two people, Adam and Eve, and both of them were sinless. They were in the perfect environment. Everything was going well for them, and yet they chose to sin. And in choosing to sin, they brought destruction upon themselves, upon the entire human race, and upon their own marriage. Our goal as believers now, we are made right with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our goal now is to make it back to the garden. We want to be right with God and back in fellowship with God. But friend, I want to say this, sin is the very thing that will separate you from a holy God. Sin is the thing that will wreck your home. It'll cause you to love the fruit and stay in hiding. And yet, if we can put down that fruit, get rid of the sin, confess it, get right with God and with each other, come out of hiding, things will go very differently in our marriages. The beautiful thing about the Gospel is that the Gospel will transform your life. It will change how you live. We say this a lot around here, the gospel transforms our lives. And if the gospel can transform your life as an individual, it will transform your marriage as a couple. Your home can be different. And so if I could encourage you, Romans chapter 6 says, no longer, if you're a believer, no longer are you in bondage to sin, but you can now be a servant to righteousness. And so may I implore you, be a servant, be a servant to righteousness. Today's couple will be in Genesis chapter 12. And today's couple is Abraham and Sarah. I skipped over Noah, if you'll forgive me for that. We don't know what Noah's wife's name is. Maybe we can call her Mrs. Noah. Uh, We don't know what Noah's wife's name is. Uh, There's not much there other than the fact that she was definitely all in as Noah was building the boat. And the boys followed along and their wives as well. Next major couple we see here in Scripture is Abraham and Sarah. And I'd like to have a look at them. I think that a lot of times we... Uh, we idolize some of the people in the Scriptures, but I want to go ahead and just tell you this. There is no great men of God. Or I should say grammar's better. There are no great men of God. Only men of a great God. And so when we look at this couple today, I'm going to focus in on the fact that we as couples can sin, not just against each other, but together as a couple sin against others. And that's what happens with Abraham and Sarah. I'll actually have a look at three different stories today. My plan is to look three different, if you want to kind of follow an outline, there'll be three different stories that we'll see about them. And each one of those, they are sinning against other people. And uh, just for clarification, if you know your Bible stories, you'll know that they started off as Abram and Sarai. And then God later changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. And just for your sakes, I'm going to stick with Abraham and Sarah throughout. However, the the names will be different. You'll see that in the text. But just for ease of conversation, 
I'll, I'll stay with Abraham and Sarah. Abram, exalted father. That's the meaning. A- Abram, that's his, the name he was born with. His parents gave him exalted father. But then God later calls him Abraham, father of multitudes or father of many nations. Given that name, when he has only one son, he's called Abraham. Called, he's, he's now being called father of many nations. Or Sarai, princess. Or Sarah, noble woman. Princess, you're born with that. Noble woman is what you become known as. And, and remember that as God changes who we are, our identity changes. See, you're born in sin, but then you're born again as a son. You get changed because when I was without Christ, I was enemies against God. But now I'm in Christ and I'm a joint heir with Him. And I'm a partaker of the inheritance of God. You see, your identity changes when God comes into your life. Things will be different. So we're here in Genesis chapter 12. I want to focus in on verses 10 to verse 20 for the first story. And I'll just give a, a, a name or a title for this story I call it, She's My Sister. She's My Sister. Maybe you remember this story. We'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 10. There was a famine in the land. Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. Remember that all throughout the Old Testament, whenever the people of God would move away from Jerusalem and towards Egypt, it was a picture of moving away, physically moving away from God, and moving towards the world. And so here is Abraham making that move, one of the first ones to do it in the Old Testament. It gets repeated many times throughout Scriptures. It's a famine in the land. And you might remember a few weeks ago, Naomi, Elimelech, in a famine, moved away from Bethlehem, the place of bread, and moved to Moab. And here we have a very similar story Abraham and Sarah moving away from God's chosen place and going to Egypt to try to find physical sustenance. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he was come near into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee. Life. Well, that's going to be a problem. So Abraham's saying, we need food. We're hungry. There's a famine. We need food. Uh, the solution is Egypt has food, but their problem is they must not have very many pretty ladies. I have a pretty lady. They're going to take my life. That's where his mind is going. He just told her, hey, let's, uh, let, let's tell a lie. By the way, it's only a half lie. Later we'll see that. It's a, it is a lie, though. And we're going to go and we're going to tell a lie, and perhaps that lie is going to save my life. You see it again in verse 13. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. It's a lie. Tell everybody that you're my sister, and I'll get to live. There is a major problem with this lie. I don't know if you've identified it yet. I don't know if Abraham at first identified it. But here's the problem. He's doing the exact opposite of what a husband should be doing for his wife. In order to save his life, he's throwing away hers. You see what he's doing? In order for me to stay alive, you go and get remarried to somebody that might not look after you so well. 
He's trading his life for hers. I might just say, bluntly, he's a stinking coward. In fact, you might remember Ephesians 5, Christ tells us exactly how we're supposed to live as husbands. Here's Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's how husbands are supposed to live. Husbands are supposed to give their own life in order to take care of their wife. Abraham's doing the exact opposite. Abraham's saying, hey, how about we just let you get married to somebody else and I'll get to stay alive? That's a terrible way to think. Christ is our example, husbands. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave, literally gave His life for us. And that's how you and I as husbands should be living. Now look at verse number 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was called into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. Well, Abraham did call that. Verse 15, the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And again, Abraham called it. And he, watch how deep this lie goes, Pharaoh entreated Abram, well for her sake. In other words, he paid, her, paid Abraham a bride price. Watch how deep this bride price goes. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Pharaoh treated Abraham well because of Sarah. In other words, Pharaoh gave a bride price of camels and donkeys and manservants and woman servants and sheep and oxen, you thought 200,000 kina was a big deal. Pharaoh's paying big money for this lady. She must have been a looker. And do you realize how deep the lie is going? So not only is Abraham saving his own skin by chucking his wife under the bus, he's profiting off of this lie. You realize that sin always complicates life. Sin always complicates life. Last week we talked about Adam and Eve sinning against one another, but this week we're talking about Abraham and Sarah together in their lies sinning against other people. You say, well, it was a half-truth, and we'll see that in a minute. It was a half-truth, but it's a full-on lie because Abraham is her husband. That's a truth that should have been fully disclosed, especially they sit down. I can just imagine... Pharaoh calls Abraham in. Is this your sister? And I can just imagine Abraham. Uh, Yeah? Well, uh, I'd like to marry her. Abraham, uh, mm, I'm thinking about my own neck right now. And maybe Pharaoh thinks that it's because Abraham's not fully persuaded. So Pharaoh goes, here, let me give you some gifts and some more gifts and some more gifts. Here's some more gifts. And camels. Have you got camels? I got camels. And Pharaoh starts putting out all of this stuff, and Abraham goes, well, at least my lie made me rich. Sin always complicates life. I have a feeling that it's not just Abraham who would happily chuck his wife under the bus. I feel like many would do the very same thing among us. And if you want to know whether or not you're chucking your wife under the bus, can I just toss some ideas out? Do you leave her 
the share of the household duties, even though she might work a job as well, even though she might just be, and I'll use air quotes because this is the word that's used, she might just be a stay-at-home mom, which in and of itself is a full-time job as she's taking care of your children most of the time in the plural and small and she's been chasing them around and you think she's been doing nothing while you've been sitting at a desk crunching numbers. Oh, be careful. Stories are never told about how grand someone is when he rolls over and lets somebody else marry his wife. But fairy tales are told about the guy that will put his own life on the line to slay a dragon and take care of his princess. I wonder where you fall in that category. It's Abraham's lie. This is Abraham's lie. But Sarah went along with it. She's my sister. Verse 17, there's consequences of Abraham's actions. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Did you see why God sent the plagues? It wasn't because of Pharaoh and it wasn't because of Abraham. It was for Sarah's sake. I'm so glad that God always takes care of women. He sent the plagues because of Sarah. God's taking care of Sarah in this moment. Verse number 18. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? And why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou, She's my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. Pharaoh just asked Abraham back into the throne room and Pharaoh asked him one simple question. Why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me that she's your sister? And this you'll see, no space for a response. For when you stand before Pharaoh in the throne room and you realize that you've done him wrong, you don't respond. I think the question comes off, it's rhetorical. In other words, it's a question that doesn't deserve an answer. Why did you lie to me, Abraham? Abraham looks at the floor. Pharaoh looks to his men. Get this guy and all of his stuff out of my country. And by the way, you study the rest of Abraham's life, you'll find out he never returns to Egypt ever again for the rest of his life. Isaac doesn't either, and Jacob has to wait until after Joseph goes. Four generations go past before anybody in the family comes back to Egypt. Two hundred years. You want to talk about walking out with shame? Abraham. Walked out with a whole bunch of stuff. He had donkeys and sheep and he had oxen and men servants and maid servants and he had his wife and oh, he had one other thing. I'll tell you later what else he had. He had one other thing, but I promise you, when they got to their deathbed and when the two of them were telling stories at the end of their lives, I have a feeling, I have a strong feeling that they wish they'd never gone to Egypt in the first place. Be careful. Because sin always complicates life. And I want you to grasp this statement this morning. I hope you'll hear it again and again this morning. You will never regret not sinning. You will never regret not sinning. I know that's terrible grammar. It's really bad grammar. And the right way to say it with proper grammar would be, you will regret sinning. But I don't want you to hear it that way. I want you to hear it in a way that will stick with you. You will never regret not sinning. In other words, in those moments in life when you get a choice, 
Do I sin or do I not sin? You get a, you get a choice. The choice is given to you. And you look at the choice to sin and you go, you know what? If I do this, there's going to be regret with that. So if I choose not to do that, I don't have to worry about the regret. So you'll never regret not sinning. Reminds me of a verse we saw a couple of years ago in Romans chapter 6. Let me share with you. Romans chapter 6 and verses 17 and 18 talks about the fact that we are in Christ and we're freed from sin. You get to choose whether you're going to sin or not. Here's Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. But God be thanked that you were servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. Church, can I implore us, dads and moms, husbands and wives, can I beg of you, choose to be a servant of righteousness, for therein lies no regrets. You'll never regret not sinning. Second story is found in Genesis chapter 20. If you'll come over to Genesis 20 with me, in verse number 1, this one I've titled, this story, No Really, She's My Sister. The first one, uh, She's My Sister. This time it's, No Really, I Promise. She's My Sister. Let's see the story again. By the way, Abraham's going to perpetuate the same lie. You've seen this lie before. Here it comes again. This is Genesis chapter 20 and verse number 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. To those of us that live on this side of the world, far removed from Kadesh, Shur, and Gerar, those places don't really mean a whole lot to us. So let me just help you for just a quick moment. It says that he moved from thence. That was the plains of Mamre. The plains of Mamre is where Hebron and Jerusalem, what would one day be known as Jerusalem, and that day Jerusalem did not exist, but where Jerusalem and Hebron were, and that's where whenever he was right with God, and whenever he met with God, he always met with God in the plains of Mamre. But it says here in chapter 20 that he moved from thence, he moved away from the plains of Mamre, and he went down between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh is the farthest southwestern corner edge of Israel, and Shur is amazing. Shur is the border of Egypt. The word Shur, S-H-U-R, the word Shur means a wall. And historians tell us that Egypt built a wall for their eastern border at shore. It was to protect their boundary. We just said a minute ago that Abraham never went back all the way into Egypt, but he did his best to get pretty close here by going towards shore. The place shore is named six times in the Old Testament, and three of them it says, Sure, as thou goest to Egypt. And God's making a point here. He didn't go all the way to Egypt, but he stopped in a place called Gerar. Gerar is a place of the Philistines, and they had a king by the name of Abimelech. We'll see Abimelech here. Look at verse number 2 with me. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Abraham. By the way, I think it's worth noting, he's getting ready to do this whole she's my sister story again. And I just can't help but wonder, because at chapter 20, Sarah is 89 years old. This has got to be mind-boggling. A drop-dead, gorgeous, 89-year-old woman. Those phrases just don't go together. 
Abraham is terrified. Either she's been doing a lot of Dead Sea mud, or those Canaanite women must have been really ugly. I don't know. But there's something going on here. 89-year-old woman that's drop-dead gorgeous, and Abraham is terrified for his own life. And they go to Gerar, and here it is again. And realize that sin always impacts your life, and it always impacts your life more than you realize. Look at verse number 3. And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. If I'm dreaming, and I get a dream from God, and God says you're a dead man, I'm paying attention. God just said to Abimelech, Abimelech is not a God-fearing man. Abimelech is a king of the enemies of God. And God showed up to him in a dream and said, Abimelech, you're a dead man because you've now taken a woman to be your wife and she's somebody else's wife. Poor Abimelech is completely caught off guard. You might think with me for just a minute, why is this such a big deal in this moment? And I think that the answer is found in the fact that it is this moment. Because Genesis chapter 20 happens shortly after Genesis 18 and 19 chronologically. I know that in the Bible sometimes you might be chapter 15, and then when you go to chapter 16, it's jumped 20 years. I know that. But in this passage, chapter 18, 19, and 20 all happen within a year of themselves. And let me tell you what happened in chapter 18, because you might remember this story. God sent two angels to speak to Abraham outside the tent. And Sarah was inside the tent. You remember that? And God sent a message to Abraham, and the message was this, within a year your wife will have a son. And you remember where Sarah was? Sarah was inside the tent, and she laughed. You remember that? And God called it out, why did you laugh? And she said, no, I didn't laugh. No, God knows all things, sees all things, hears all things. And Sarah gets caught off guard and is embarrassed in that moment. But remember the fact that God had said, within a year you'll have a son. Now realize that within just a few weeks or a few months of that, they're now in the land of Gerar, and Abimelech has taken her to be his wife. Do you realize how big a deal this is? For if he weds her, that child will not be Abraham's. You realize that all throughout the Old Testament, Satan is doing his best to destroy that lineage. And you watch story after story as Satan tries to slip in and destroy the lineage that's headed to Christ. Here you have Abimelech tries to marry Sarah. If Satan can get a child out of that one, God's promise to Abraham has failed. Then you've got Isaac and Jacob. Uh, sorry, Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca have twin boys. And if you're going to be Satan and you're going to go after who you can, you're going to go after the firstborn, right? And you remember how Esau turned out. But God had told Rebecca in a dream, it's not going to be the firstborn that is the one that will be the lineage. It will be the secondborn. 
And so while Satan's been focusing on the firstborn, God already had his plan in the secondborn. And then you come to Jacob and his 12 sons, and you remember how Simeon, uh, sorry, the oldest one, uh, Simeon, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Reuben, Reuben was unstable as water. Those are the words that his father used. This guy doesn't even know how to think straight. And then you've got Simeon and Levi, the second and third ones. And those guys were murderers. They went and, and, and destroyed an entire city, tricked them and killed them. And then that leaves Judah. And you and I know that Judah is where the lineage will come from. But if you look through Judah's life, you find out that he's a real good at doing nothing. And he sits back and does nothing except for raise three sons who are wicked as the devil. And God ends up killing the first two. You remember the story. We talked about that not too, far, too long ago. And he ends up having a son, having twin sons that aren't even supposed to be born to him. Perez and Zerah. And God redeems Perez's story and ends up using Perez. And that was God's plan all along. You see, Satan's doing everything he can to destroy that lineage. And he does it generation after generation after generation. And here it's happening right at the very beginning, Abraham and Sarah. Abimelech takes her to wife. Abraham sinned against him. Sarah has participated in this. And Abimelech wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes, if I follow down this path, I'm dying. God's going to kill me. It's a terrifying moment. Verse number 4 down to verse number 7. Abimelech claims ignorance before God. Can I just take a moment here and remind you? Abraham does this, she's my sister lie. Some 75 years later, Isaac is in the land of Gerar, and to the king of Gerar, a man named Abimelech. I think because it's 75 years later, I think it's this Abimelech's son. Isaac repeats the same lie about his wife. She's my sister. Abraham, she's my sister. Isaac, she's my sister. Can I just repeat this? I keep saying it over the last several weeks. I keep saying it. There is such a thing as generational sin. The gospel should be transforming our lives. We should be putting a stop to generational sin. Dads and moms, you can put a stop to this. But Abraham exhibits it. Isaac follows it. Abimelech declares to God, I'm innocent in all of this. I had no idea. They lied to me. God tells him, better, better take care of this and do it fast. Look at verse number 8. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. You better be, when God wakes you up in the middle of the night and tells you you're a dead man, you better be afraid. Everybody in their whole palace is afraid right now. So he calls Abraham before him in verses 9 and 10, and he asks Abraham harshly, Why? Why would you lie to me? And this time it's not the throne room of Pharaoh. This is just the king of Gerar. He's a regional king. He's not a national king. And so Abraham gets a chance to respond, and his response is eye-opening. Look at verse 11, and you'll see his response. Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed, she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. He, he, he passes that off as almost as if, you know, she, it's not a real full lie, it's just a partial lie. She's the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother, and, and she just happened to become my wife, like, oops, we just got married. This is it's not a real lie. 
Verse 13 will show you how deep this lie goes. And it came to pass. When God caused, caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness that thou wilt show unto me. At every place whither we shall come, say of me, He's my brother. Do you remember when Abraham left his father's house? That was the Ur of the Chaldees 25 years ago. So for the last 25 years, every place they go, they've been perpetuating this lie. You stinking coward. And again, regret will follow him. And regret will follow you and sin. And friend, please remember what we've said this morning. You will never regret not sinning. You'll never regret it. I didn't sin. Nobody ever gets to the end of their life and says, well, I chose not to sin in that moment. Man, I really wish I'd have done that. You'll never regret not sinning. So twice Abraham has led the sin and both times Sarah has followed and played along. So let's see it swap roles now. Sarah's going to lead in a sin and Abraham will follow along. This brings us to our third one. We've had, she's my sister. And then we had, no, really, she's my sister. And here's the third one. Hey, let's help God out. Look at Genesis chapter 16 and you'll see this third time that they sinned together. This is Sarah, and, and, and I see her words in sinning as, let's help God out. This is Genesis chapter 16 and verse number 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Before I go further, I mentioned earlier that they left from Egypt with many possessions. And I don't know for certain that they picked up Hagar when they were in Egypt, but the Bible does make a very big point here in verse number 1 of making sure that we know that she, Hagar, the slave, was Egyptian. And I think to myself, when would they have had an opportunity to have gotten a slave from Egypt? When they went down to Egypt, I can't help but think when Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem to be the queen of Egypt... I can't help but think, perhaps, Hagar was a gift to Sarah. I don't know for certain, but it sure does seem that way. And so here they've been traveling, moving from place to place, and Hagar the slave is going with them, and heartache would follow. Verse number 2, Sarah said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid... It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Sarah, in this moment, thinks that this is a win-win-win. Now, I'm not going to address polygamy Today, I will address it much in next week's sermon. Today, however, I do want to point out the fact that Sarah came up with this idea and she thought it would be a win for Abraham, a win for herself, and a win for Hagar. How does that happen? Well, you can see it in verse number 2 
The Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray you go into the maid that I may obtain children by her. So the win is Abraham gets to have a son. I, Sarah, get to have a baby. And then Hagar, the end of verse 3, gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. Hagar will get a promotion from being a slave to being a wife. This is a win-win-win for everybody involved, except that it's sin, sin, sin. Sarah leads the sin. Abram goes along. Please remember, you will never regret not sinning. Abraham goes along, verse number 4. He went in unto Hagar. And she conceived, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee, I have given my maid into thy bosom. When she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. Simply put, Hagar got pregnant. She is now second wife. She got pregnant and she began to despise Sarah. Now just think about how this works within the house. You've got Father Abraham and then you've got Sarah. They've been married for probably 60 years, 50 years plus. And now they've got this slave girl who's been in the house. And by the way, the slavery issue is worth addressing. We don't have time to address it. It's sin as well. But here you've got a slave girl in the house who gets promoted to be up to be a wife. And when she gets pregnant, do you realize what she did to Sarah? Me Mary Blungen. Now me got Bell. You might not talk to me. You go get our coffee. You go sweep the floor. That's what happened. Hagar despised Sarah. That's natural, by the way. Who wouldn't have expected this to happen? And now Sarah says, but wait a second. For the last 20 years, she's been my servant, and now she's trying to make me be her servant. She goes back to Abraham and says, this isn't working. And Abraham, like the good coward that he has been all along, sits back and he goes, hmm. Sorry. Sarah's words, at the end there of verse 5, Sarah's words were, I'm going to let God just be the one who's judging. Is it your wrong or is it my wrong? I can just imagine the arguments that must have been going on in the house. Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar in verse number 6. Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. Coward. Abraham, you're a big part of this problem. And you're saying, Sarah, solve it. So Sarah dealt hardly with her and she fled from her face. Sarah abused Hagar and Hagar ran away. Understandably so. And by the way, Hagar runs away, I think, trying to go to Egypt because that's where she's from. And she makes it to Shur. S-H-U-R. And the angel of the Lord stops her at Shur, and this is in the following verses there, the angel of the Lord stops her at Shur and tells her, go back. This is not go back and continue to be a slave, this is go back and raise your son in the house of Abraham, for Abraham will take care of that son. 
Abraham will be the father of many nations, and your son still deserves an inheritance. So go back to the house of Abraham. And she does. Verse 15, And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So Abraham is now 86 years old, and he's deep in sin. Brothers and sisters, in our marriages, oh, how easy it is to slip into sin between ourselves and towards others. Oh, how easy that is. Abraham's 86 years old, and I think that that's worth pointing out because this last verse in verse 16 points out that he's 86 years old. Now look at chapter 17 and verse 1 and see how old he is. And when Abraham was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram. Thirteen years passed between those two verses. I see that as the silence of God as Abraham dwelt in his sin. The silence of God. Abraham didn't have a Bible that he could read. He didn't have the lives of Paul and Jesus and David to read about. Worship the Lord. Fall on your face before Him. Commune with God. These are the things that Abraham has. But he fell in sin. And I believe for 13 years, he stayed there. But I'm so glad that we have 1 John 1.9 in the Bible. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to stay there, friend. Those are deep, deep dark seasons of the soul. And you don't have to stay there. You can come back to Him. And I want you to see His posture in verse 3. This is 17 in verse 3. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. Friend, you can make things right with God. As a couple, as individuals within the couple, you can make things right with God. It's very possible. So let me give you some practical helps as we close I'm going to give you five of them. If you want to write them down, I might encourage you to do so. As couples, what can you do as couples instead of sinning together? How can you work together? I'm going to start the first one, and I think I would be, as a pastor, I would be a bad pastor if I didn't start with this one. Continue with your spiritual disciplines. Continue with your spiritual disciplines. This is very important both individually and together. And what do I mean by your spiritual disciplines? Spend time reading the Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time gathering with the brothers and sisters in Christ. For the corporate gathering, you will be strengthened. And please don't think for a single moment that if I read my Bible today, God's going to give me some kind of magic thing that will happen today and my day will go so much better. That's not how spiritual discipline works. It's not how physical discipline works either. Physical discipline, you lift weights, you exercise, you go for a jog. You don't get to the end of the day after having gone on a jog. You don't get to the end of the day and say, oh look, I lost another 10 kilos today. No, it doesn't happen that way. Discipline is over time. But I love the words of Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. Trees don't grow up overnight. 
He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll give forth fruit in His season. You don't look at a tree and go, wow, I didn't see that tree there yesterday. No, you look at a tree and you say, this tree has been growing for 50 years. And when it grows, it grows slowly. But you get to enjoy the fruit from the tree and you get to enjoy the shade from the tree. And that's how you're going to be in your spiritual walk. Your spiritual walk is you're spending time in the Word together as a couple. I've told you how many times, Becky and I, every morning, we sit on the bed side by side. I bring a coffee for me and one for her. Now she's in a bad habit now. She wants two coffees now. And we sit side by side and we read through the Word. We're reading the exact same thing. Sometimes she's a few verses ahead of me. Sometimes I'm a few verses before her. But I attribute our relationship and where we're at in our relationship to 20 years of this. Friend, you can have a godly marriage. Put those spiritual disciplines in their place. Don't expect them to be a magic pill overnight. It doesn't happen that way. But continue in those spiritual disciplines. Second, enjoy each other. Enjoy each other. I mentioned this in the sermon on the providence of God about a month ago. If you spend your life focusing on the things that you don't have, you'll end up having a life of famine. But enjoy each other. You realize Abraham and Sarah had 300 servants that they loved deeply? Abraham, before God told him, your son Isaac will inherit everything you have, Abraham thought his servant Eleazar would. And that tells me that he loved Eleazar. Eleazar is my right-hand man, and if I die and give him everything, I'm going to be happy. That's his mindset. 300 servants. Abraham's and Sarah, all they've got to focus on is where's our baby? Hey, God promised it. Hang on, He'll fulfill it. But in the meantime, why not enjoy each other? Here's another one that follows along the same lines. Make good memories together. Make good memories together. Could you imagine if Abraham and Sarah got to their old age and they're sitting on the veranda together and Sarah says to Abraham something like, hey, Abraham, you remember that time we hit a famine? And we had talked about maybe going down to Egypt, but you'd said something. It was so wise. You said, you know, we should just trust God for this one. We're changing the story, right? And could you imagine the two of them sitting there on the veranda having a cup of coffee together? I don't think coffee was invented yet by that time, but maybe it's cappuccinos. And they're enjoying those cappuccinos on the veranda, and she says, but instead of us going down to Egypt, we decided we were going to put God to the test and we're going to trust Him. And do you remember how that caravan came along and they needed to get rid of a camel or two? And they needed to give some food away because they didn't have enough water to feed their camels and God just provided for us. Do you remember that? Make good memories together. The hard times are the times that we remember, friend. You think back on your life and all the stories of your life. Think about all the different times that you've been through. Oh, sometimes you remember the good times, but the ones that stick out the most are the ones that were tough. And when you waited on the Lord, you made good memories. 
Oh, those are the things that you'll remember. Make good memories together. I'm going to say this, men, make a note of this. Put it in the back of your Bible. Don't do it this week because your wife's going to know where, I, where it came from. Guys, take her away. You did your best when you two were dating. You did your best to get alone time with her. And the two of you would go away and you'd tell sweet nothing stories at the nature park. And you guys would dream together of what was to happen. And now you've been married for 15 years and you can't stand to be alone with her. Back it up. Write that up. Write that down. Put it in the back of your Bible. Take her to Sagari. Take her away to Tufi. Hey, look, it doesn't have to cost any money. Take her to Ella Beach. Tell your boss. <laughs> Ladies, just close your ears for a minute. I'm, I'm talking to the men right now. Tell your boss you need a personal day. Plan it well in advance. Don't tell her. Surprise her. Plan somebody to take care of the kids. Don't tell her. Just surprise her. And then, on that morning, you get up and you tell her, Honey, I've got a special day planned for you today. I already have a babysitter for the kids. And guess what? I'm going to go one step further. I'm leaving my phone at the house. We're not scrolling social media today. I'm not going to Facebook or Instagram the moments that we have together. Your time is mine. Oh, what a gift that would be to your wife, and she'll remember it. Ladies, please, I told you at the beginning of this marriage series, don't ever use what I said against me. <laughs> so if he doesn't do it in a month, I don't want you to bring it up to him later and say, Pastor Matt said. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Gentlemen, log it away. Put a memory on your calendar, on your phone. It'll tell you. There's a neat thing that'll do. Just an alert. One month from today, pastor said, take my wife away. That's free. You can take that and pay me well later. All right? Last one. Uh, second to last one. Second to last one. Be an encourager. Be an encourager. This is practical. Be an encourager. Can you imagine how these Bible stories would have been so much different if one of them had been an encourager to the other one? Abraham, two sins, two lies, she plays along. Sarah, one lie, major lie that we've been paying for for thousands of years. There is massive unrest in the Middle East because of Abraham's sin. And it was Sarah's idea. You realize that most of the time when couples are talking and one of them has an idea and says it to the other one, they don't really know if it's a good idea or not. And they say, hey, what do you think about if we did this or that? And the other one just passively says, sure, let's do it. You realize that most of the time when the one is tossing out the idea, the other one's looking for, do you think this is actually a good idea? Abraham and Sarah, can you imagine how different the story would have been when Abraham had said, when he said, you know, we're leaving my father's house in Ur of Chaldees and we're probably going to spend the next 25 years wandering. And I'm afraid that they might kill me because of how drop-dead gorgeous you are. So I'd appreciate, Sarah, as we go from place to place, just say, hey, bro, how's it going? <laughs> what if she'd been an encourager in that moment? What if instead of her going along with a lie, what if she'd have said something like, you know, Abraham, I don't want anybody else in this world. And if it costs you dying, I'll die right there beside you. Be an encourager. 
Or how about this one? When Sarah came to Abraham and said, I think that Hagar would be the way to have a child, Abraham looked at her and go, I married you till death do us part. Maybe I'll wonder about Hagar after you're dead, but right now, no way, Jose. You're my wife. Be an encourager. Lift each other up. This is practical. And by the way, while I'm here, can I make mention of the fact that many times whenever a family goes through tragedy, that many times they end up turning on each other. Don't turn on each other in the midst of a tragedy. How many times I've counseled with couples who have lost a child. And what ends up happening is the dad will say, but if she'd only looked after that child better, then I'd still have a son. Or maybe the mom says, but if I hadn't let him go with you. Guys, looking back on a tragedy, you can dissect a tragedy many different ways. In the midst of a tragedy, you need each other. I'm going to share something a bit personal. I think I've got time. I do. I've got time. I'm going to share something a bit personal. I, couldn't share, I wouldn't be able to share this if they were here. Papa John and Mama Lena are in the States right now. I had a little brother who passed away. He was 19 years old when he passed away. Benny. That was a tragedy that marked our family. I was 23. Benny was 19. And it was sudden. What happened was Nate, our youngest brother, Nate was 17. Nate and Ben were at the beach. And Nate got swept out by the tide. And Ben saw that Nate had gotten swept out by the tide at the beach. And Ben jumped in and tried to swim out and save his life. In a way that only God can explain, somehow the ocean returned Nate to us, but took Ben. It was over 25 hours before they found his body. It was miles down the beach. I'm talking about shattered our homes. In the days that followed, I watched as my dad held my mom. Guys, there was no conversation about, well, if we hadn't sent him to that school, or if we'd have taught him better about swimming. There was none of that stuff. It was, this tragedy happened, and it's affecting dad, and it's affecting mom, and both of them are mourning, and they're holding each other for help. And let me share with you just an insight. This is what I can't say when they're in front of me. We buried Benny there in Louisville, Kentucky, in a cemetery, and the cemetery is beside the freeway. There's a flyover on the freeway where from the flyover you can see the gravesite. This was about 10 years after the burial. 10 years had gone by, and I was in, in the U.S. with my family, had Becky and the kids, And it was one of those rare times that I was in the U.S. and mom and dad were also in the U.S. at the same time. And as we were driving down the freeway, I wanted to point out to my children where the cemetery was. I want my children to know where my brother was buried. And as we came down the freeway, we came up over the overpass, and as we were approaching the overpass, I said to the girls, I said, hey girls, look over to the side, you're going to see the cemetery where Uncle Benny's buried. And as I'm driving, I was trying to point out, you see that tree, and then you go down from that tree, down, and then I saw there were two people standing there. 
I said, it's where those two people are. And one of my girls spoke up and said, that's grandma and grandpa. And I looked closely. It's my dad's holding my mom. And I could tell from my mom's body posture 10 years later, she's still broken. I can tell you this, it's been 20 years now. She's still broken. In the midst of tragedy, couples, and perhaps you haven't gone through a tragedy like this, but couples, you need to be setting it in your mind right now. When the tragedy comes, I'm not turning on this one. We're in this together. Don't turn on each other. Be an encourager. And the last one that I've got practically this morning, involve each other in every major decision. Involve each other in every major decision. Look for ways to lift each other up. Men, she is your rib. She is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Ladies, he's your head. He's your covering. That's the words of the Bible. And men, she's the body to your head. You get rid of the body, you're a silly looking head. Work together. Involve one another in every major decision. What major expenses will you take up? And how many children will you have? Where are you going to go to work? And where will you live? Involve each other. And involve each other early from the decision-making process. Don't wait until you've already figured it out and then just inform them. Oh, by the way, we're moving somewhere. Involve each other in every major decision-making. This is the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so often they're looked up to, the father and mother of the Jewish people. The first Hebrews. But we get a glimpse today that there's not a single sinless person other than the Lord Jesus. And it's because of the Lord Jesus that we can be made right with God. And it's because of the Lord Jesus that we can have godly relationships. Because we can be transformed by the Gospel. Can I... Remind you this morning, you'll never regret not sinning. And you can choose. Instead of being a slave to sin, you can be a servant to righteousness. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You this morning that You have provided Your Word for us. And from Your Word, we can take lessons. Lord, I do pray that we would choose to be servants of righteousness. I pray that we would choose to allow the Gospel to transform our lives. Lord, I thank You for Your goodness that You've shown upon us. And Lord, I pray that we would take that goodness, show it towards one another in our marriages, and then with our marriages, show that goodness of God to others. For it's in Your beautiful name I ask it. Amen.